I'm going to read the passage aloud if you'll follow along. Of course, we, we receive these words coming to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God and therefore coming to us with the same kind of authority as if Jesus were teaching us. So let's hear the word of Christ. Nehemiah 5, now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. Let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our house to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. We're forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already in, have been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Verse 6, Nehemiah said, I was very angry. When I heard their outcry in these words, I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you're exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I, Nehemiah said, the things that you are doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so shall God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of the king Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governor uh, who was before me laid heavy burdens on the people, took from them their daily ra uh, ration, 40 shekels of silver, even their servants lorded over people, but I did not do so because of the fear of the Lord. I also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, beside those who came to us from the nations that were around us. And that was prepared for them. From my expense each day, an ox and six choice sheep and birds. Every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because, of the, ser because the service was too heavy on the people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot recently is a framework of knowledge, a framework of truth. You, you could, if you want to use a technical term, call, uh, call this an epistemological model. Like how, epistemology is the study of truth or the study of knowledge. How are people coming up with what they believe is right or true or good? What is their framework, right, of truth or knowledge? What is right? And a secular world has really struggled with this, a, a world that doesn't believe in the Lord, has really struggled to have any sort of framework of knowledge that has any form about it. As Dostoevsky famously said, if there is no God, anything is permitted. What are you saying in that? If there's no form, right, if there's, if there's nothing to appeal to, if he can say this is right and he can say no, this is right, what's to prevent them from, or how do you know which one is right, right? There has to be some sort of framework. There has to be some sort of form of what is true that they're, they're both appealing to, to have any system of justice or righteousness or beauty or good. And so what we've kind of come into is not an age of reason, as Thomas Paine said we would come into as we got rid of a notion of God. What we've come into is an age of reaction. Rather than people appealing to a form of truth, they just react to other people and their opinions and their statements and the things that they believe. It's this age of reaction. And we've been feeling this, haven't we? There's massive pendulum swift shifts on what people say is right or good. And an interesting case study that I was thinking about this week is the, the, the case study on how people have dealt with or looked at uh, policing in America. Last summer, of course, we all remember, we, we all witnessed this horrible Injustice, when George Floyd was killed, there was, a, there was bad policing. There was an unjust act that happened, and it was rightly condemned. But the reaction to that was so extreme. Uh, people began to say, we need to defund the police. We need to get rid of this system of injustice. What's interesting is here now, just over a year later, in most municipal elections in major American cities, including our own, what's on the platform of every major candidate in these races is proposals to add more funding to policing, to increase policing. What is that? What, what, how do you have that happen? And I think it's because there's no form. No one ever stopped to ask the question, what is human justice? What is human dignity? What is our right understanding of human behavior? It's just an age of reaction. People don't know why they believe what they believe. They aren't anchored in any larger worldview. I was having a lunch not too long ago with a college professor, and this college professor is certainly not of a biblical worldview. But he was bemoaning the fact that at his school, there was no form. He was saying what I'm saying to you right now. He was saying there's no form. There's no form of knowledge. Everybody's just reacting all the time. They don't understand how inconsistent their worldview positions are. It's interesting um, that this is where we find ourselves. 
But I, I, I say all of this to say that what we are doing right now is so important. <laughs> what, what you are taking part of right now is so important for you to not get swept into this age of reaction. What we are doing right now is trying to hear from a living God who is, as Christians we believe, who is the true form, the true good. Remember Plato's theory of forms from Philosophy 101 class? Plato said there would be, there is somewhere a true good. We can know what's good because there's some good out there that we can appeal to. Now, Plato didn't believe in Jesus. He didn't, he didn't know what that true good was, but we do. We believe that there is a good God who is right and holy. And we can discern all other truth and beauty and what is right and wrong and justice from him. And he's not just a God who exists. He's a God who has spoken. He's a God who's revealed himself. As Carl Henry famously said, he's forfeited his own personal privacy to let himself be known. Last week, I read this little passage from an article that Tim Keller recently wrote on justice. And he says this, in the Bible, Christians have an ancient, rich, strong, comprehensive, complex, and attractive understanding of justice. And you, know, you could really insert any word there of sexuality, of gender, of nationalism, of human purpose, of human dignity. In the Bible, this true good, this true form has spoken, has revealed himself. And what I fear is we don't really know what he said. <laughs> what I fear is we, we've only come to the Bible for the parts of it that give us a little personal therapy, but we haven't come to the Scriptures to really shape us, to form us. And a Christian in that state will end up taking the forms of the world around him or her, but maybe attaching a Bible verse here and there. <laughs> we don't want to be that. We want to be people who are shaped, who are formed by the true form, by God himself and by what God has said. And I give all of that as an introduction to Nehemiah 5, because this is an amazing passage. And it's an incredibly helpful passage when it comes to thinking about some big things that we find ourselves thinking about in these days. Justice, human flourishing, poverty, righteousness, correction. It comes in an interesting place. It, it, there's just been this great movement, this, I would say, triumph among the people of Israel. They've built the wall. They're, they're building the wall. They're not quite done yet, but the work is advancing despite great opposition. You, you almost expected Nehemiah 5 a little celebration, but that's not what you see. D despite this great provision from the Lord, despite this incredible working together among the people on one project, on the other side, there's this exploitation going on. There's disobedience going on. Now, it is a little bit of a tricky passage to just kind of read and know exactly what's happening. It is a passage that I hope, one of the reasons we have sermon-driven curriculum in our groups is that you're, you're going to get more out of this passage than I can give. One of the reasons that we have the sermon talk back, and if you don't, aren't aware of that, we have a little podcast that we do every week where we talk more about the sermon. There's a lot to pull out of this passage. 
But there's three big parts to it. And I want to walk through those. And then there's some things that I want to draw from the passage for us today. But the first passage, I would say, verse one through five, kind of presents the problem. These people are coming forward with their problem. They're, they're working hard. They're trying to build this wall. They're trying to establish themselves here in the promised land. But they're hungry. They're poor. There's poverty. They're, they're, they're in great debt. As they say, they're, they're children. They're, they're binding up their children toward slavery because they've gotten into so much debt. And there's reason for this. There's, there's some complex issues going on. They, first, they say, look, we have a lot of kids. Our families are big. It's hard to pay for all of this. Those of you who have big families, you guys get it. Uh, in the previous service, uh, Barrett Fisher, who's one of our pastors, Barrett has six kids. Jordan Coffin has five. Y'all gonna, y'all gonna win that battle or are you gonna, no, you're done. Okay, but anyway, but golly, I know, six kids, that's a lot, that's a lot of braces to pay for, right? That's, that's a lot, that's expensive. There's a lot to do when you have these large families. These people are multiplying, they're going into the land, but there's a cost with that. There's a burden with that. Secondly, there's a famine. It's a natural disaster. Nobody could have prevented that. It's just a natural reality of the world. But then the final thing that was creating this debt was a tax. Remember, they're all living under Persian rule. And so even though they have their own kind of personal needs as the Hebrew people of God, they're underneath the rule of the Persians. There's this external tax that they are all having to pay. Now, what's happening is, is because there's so many expenses, people are borrowing money from one another, but... Those that have, the, the privileged among them, the, the Jewish people who have more, are extracting interest in these loans. And they're, they, where they can't pay, they're taking the collateral. They're taking their property. They're taking even their children as collateral on these things. That's the first part, the problem. The second part then of the passage, really verses 6 through 13, Nehemiah hears about this. He hears the outcry and he's incredibly angry. I can't believe that they're doing this. He's, first of all, mad at his own countrymen for taking advantage of their brothers in need, their sisters in need. But he's also angry because God had actually already told them what to do in these circumstances. We actually see this several places in the Mosaic Law, but here's just one example for, the, for our purposes. Deuteronomy 23. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. But he interestingly says, you may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest that the Lord, your God, may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. So this is very interesting. It's, it's not that this is just an anti-interest law that existed, what the Mosaic law about here, what Nehemiah is saying is there's a bigger thing going on. We're not just here for our own individual gain. We are citizens of a kingdom. We are a people that God has called to manifest himself through, to let his glory be known through. And so there's a way that we need to treat one another. We need to look out not just for our own flourishing, but for the flourishing of our brothers and sisters, for the flourishing of these people who are the people of Israel. So Nehemiah responds in this very interesting way. He calls this assembly. He brings an account we see in verse 9, 
He says, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? What is he saying here? He's saying you are just behaving like the enemies around us are behaving. You've forgotten that there's a bigger call going on. You're just exacting it. You're, do, you're, you're using the same kind of behavior as these other nations are doing. Moreover, I and my brothers, my servants are lending money and grain. Let's look after one another. Let's abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses in the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. So Nehemiah calls this assembly. He brings these things to light. And amazingly, <laughs> in the uh, assembly of all of these witnesses, they all are caught. They agree. They say, we will restore these things and require nothing. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they promised. And the assembly hears this and they cry out, amen. And then we get to the third part here, the third part of the passage. And it's really Nehemiah's amazing example. And again, I'm not going to go through it in detail, but basically Nehemiah is not taking advantage of all that he was due. He, he was the governor. He, he could have been receiving taxes. He could have been receiving great reward for his service. But not only did he not take advantage of the people, he wasn't even taking all that he was owed as the leader of these people. And more than that, he sacrificially fed these people. As we read here, he fed these 150 people. He brought his own ox, his own, his own supplies to feed them. He did not exploit them. Even he went beyond what he was supposed to do. So that's the, that's the text. And, and I think it's important now for us to say, okay, so how does this speak to us, Jason? What does this say? Like, what are you, how does it give us this form of justice and what is right? And there's a lot of things that we could say here, but I think a very helpful outline for us. And Jeremy Brooks brought this up in our teaching meeting this week. Uh, and I think he's right. I think it's really helpful. There's three main characters here. First, those being exploited, or you could just say the poor that were being exploited, exploited. Secondly, those that were exploiting the poor. And then third, Nehemiah himself. So let's look at the first category, the, the poor. Now, I think one of the things to take away from this is just the complexity of their poverty, right? This is a very complex situation. They're underneath Persian rule. There's a tax. There's a famine. There's a natural disaster that nobody could have controlled. Um, there's large families. There's duties that they have. They've just undertaken this massive building project. There's a lot going on. Their, their, their situation is incredibly complex. And, and I say this to you, and I think something that we should take away from this. When you, when you encounter someone that has been exploited, that's been marginalized, that's in a tough situation, it's very easy as a person of privilege, as a person who's well taken care of, to, to have a simple solution for their complex issue. To look at them with say, well, they should just work harder or make a better decision or stop doing that. And again, in some cases, those things may be true. You know, the truth of the matter is we find ourselves in a country where there is incredible opportunity, a lot of pathways toward human flourishing. But most of the time, pretty much all the time, there's a lot of complexity to human pain and suffering that we see around us. 
There are a lot of layers to their pain. And it's very easy to just have a simple solution. People on the political left often say, well, it's just systematic, right? It's just racism or classism or some systematic issue. People on the right often say, well, it's just personal decisions. There's fatherlessness, drug abuse, sexual immorality. When the truth of the matter is, these are complex situations. We live in a complex world. Sometimes people find themselves in situations of poverty because of their own choices. Sometimes it's because of their parents' choices. Sometimes it's choices of people that they've never met or never will meet. And they're left with very few options, very few opportunity, very powerless. And, and when you're powerless, it's very easy to be exploited. I had the opportunity to go to the City of Refuge dinner, fundraising dinner the other night. And it's a wonderful ministry that we as a church are privileged to engage with and to partner with. And they obviously shared a lot of stories about how people are being impacted by that ministry. But one just particularly caught my ear. I was kind of amazed at this. There was a woman and she was born into a situation where her parents both died. She was orphaned at a young age, had to go into a foster care situation and got into adulthood. And there's a lot of layers to this story, but she got into adulthood and she didn't have a birth certificate, a social security card or a driver's license. Well, it's hard to get a job if you don't have one of those three things. And she didn't really know what to do. She didn't have advocates. She didn't have parents. She didn't have people that really cared about her. And so she went a long time in life just being further and further and further exploited by a world that could take advantage of her situation. And so, praise God, she got engaged with that wonderful ministry, and the Lord has just done amazing things in her life. My point is this. When you, when you see someone that is broken, that is poor, that has found themselves in a difficult situation, don't assume a simple answer. Don't assume a, a simple cause. Assume that there's a lot of layers, and there's a lot of complexity going on. And another thing, remember that those are exactly the kind of people that Jesus identifies with most. Which brings me to the second character, the exploiter, the, the person in the position of power. Here we have in this situation, these people that it doesn't seem like they're doing really anything wrong, right? They're just lending money and charging interest. But they're doing something that was against the law that God had given them. It was against the pathway that God had set for them. It was not how the people of Israel were to behave. It's very easy when you find yourself with much in a position of power, to flex that power, to flex your wealth, to flex your influence. And sometimes you can, even unknowingly, oppress the marginalized. Anytime you get power and privilege, I just want to warn you of this. It's very easy to take advantage of the community around you. It's easy to use your power and privilege to take advantage of the community around you rather than using your power and privilege to serve the community around you. Now, I want you to listen to this. This, this goes both ways. It's, it's also easy to exploit victimhood or self-justification. We live in a world where people can stay, even people with great, with, with a lot of 
wealth can exploit their own victimhood, meaning that there's, there's always a sense of justification. It's their fault. It's their fault. It's their fault. I, I have these problems, but it's all their fault. And I think this may be a big part of the problem. There was a German pastor who was pastoring in the mid-20th century named Gunther Rutenborn. And he was pastoring in the 50s, um, mid-20th century Germany, and he was trying to make sense of the Holocaust. How could this have happened? How could these good Lutheran people <laughs> have done this horrible thing, have done this thing that, that is so wrong? And, and so, I mean, how could these people have allowed this to happen right underneath their noses? And so to respond to that, he wrote a play called The Sign of Jonah. And in the play, they basically try to find the answer to that question. How could this have happened? So they go to the soldiers that ran the concentration camps, and they say, it's your fault. You did this. And you know what the soldiers say? They say, no, <laughs> it wasn't my fault. I was just doing what I was told. It was the general's fault. The general made me do this, and he threatened me. Actually, I'm the victim here. I, I'm the one that had to do something I didn't want to do. So they go to the general. It's your fault. Why did you? And the general said, no, no, it's not my fault. You, you got it all wrong. It's the politician's fault. The politician's the one that did this, and they made this happen. It's, it's their fault. They keep going around, and finally, where does all this lead them? They go to God. And they say, God, it's your fault. It's all your fault. And they end up putting God on trial, and I'll, I'll let you read the play to figure out what happens. But the, but the point I'm trying to make here is it's, it's very easy to stay in this perpetual state of victimhood and to always be self-justified and to always, it's always someone else to blame and go along in systems that are unjust and can exploit others but feel all along that you are the victim, that you are that you are the excused. And I just want to say, if you, if you do this, if you, if you live in that state, if you're never willing to take responsibility, you will actually be an exploiter. You will actually be the one that always takes advantage of someone else. So we have the complexity of the poor. We have the problem of the exploiter. But finally, we have Nehemiah. And we can learn a lot from Nehemiah in this passage. We can learn a lot about how to bless the city. We can learn a lot about justice. We can learn a lot about human flourishing. We can learn a lot about how thy kingdom, the kingdom of God really comes. And the first thing we see here from Nehemiah is that he exposes injustice. When Nehemiah hears this, when he hears what's going on, he doesn't turn a blind eye to it. He exposes it. He calls an assembly. And I just want you to hear this. This is what we need. Injustice should be exposed. In fact, we need this individually and we need this corporately. Sin only ever grows in darkness. You need to know that. Sin only ever grows in darkness. If there's some things in your life right now that nobody knows about, chances are you need to, that needs to be exposed. It is a sin in your heart that is growing and that will destroy you. This needs to happen to us individually, but also corporately. It's very easy to see injustice, to see something that you know is wrong, to see something that you know doesn't line up 
with the form that God has laid forward, with what God has said is right, and turn a blind eye to it. And it's especially easy when that system of injustice benefits you. The question is this, are, are we the kind of people that will be willing to step in and do something, expose when things are wrong? Do we have that kind of courage, that kind of love for the Lord? William Wilberforce became a Christian in 1785 under the preaching, under the ministry of John Newton. Some of y'all know John Newton. He wrote the most famous song. Jordan Coughlin's a good songwriter. He's written some really good songs. John Newton wrote a more famous one, Amazing Grace, probably the most famous song ever written. And he ended up ministering to William Wilberforce. Now, William Wilberforce was a person who had power. He had influence. He was in parliament. And under Newton's ministry, Wilberforce became convinced that something had to be done about the slave trade. And so he incredibly, it's really an amazing story, laid his whole reputation, his whole political career, his whole, you could really say just life on the line to try to stop the slave trade. And he worked for 20 years pleading with Parliament. And finally, in 1807, a law was passed. The slave trade was ended. But that, he didn't stop there. <laughs> he kept working. He said, now all of slavery needs to be abolished. And he kept working. And, and actually, three days after he died, in 1833, Parliament passed the law abolishing all slavery in the United Kingdom. And it's interesting that, that that's not what happened on this side of the Atlantic. Even though everyone, a lot of people over here knew that this was a bad system, an uneasy system. I just finished reading Chernow's biography of George Washington. And again, as, as wonderful as some of our founding fathers were, it's, it's, it's very interesting to read how they interacted with this institution that they all felt uneasy about, that they all knew was, was not right, but they just were so tied into it, they couldn't do anything about it. They didn't do anything about it. The point is this. Will we be the kind of people that turn a blind eye to sin? Will we be the kind of people satisfied to keep sin and injustice in the darkness? Or will we be the kind of people that expose it, even though there's a cost, even though it may require us giving 20 or 30 or 50 years of our lives to fighting for what it's right? Nehemiah was willing to expose Injustice. He was also willing to create systems of human flourishing, and I, and I pray that we would be committed to this also. I mean, the whole project of building the wall was this. It was a system of security. He was trying to create a system of flourishing for the people of God. This whole don't cause your brother to fall into debt, it was all about that all of the people may flourish, that there would be a flourishing group of these that had been called by God to be his people. Are we willing, are we committed to this, to, to creating systems of, of human flourishing for all? And this is, I think, very instructive for us as we think about bless the city. Uh, you know, and I'm not saying anything that, I'm not saying that this is wrong to do, but I, I've seen a lot of churches when they have like a local missions thing, they'll put everybody in a t-shirt and go out to the highway and pick up trash or something like that. And, and that's a good thing to do. I'm not saying that's a bad thing to do. And it's certainly a good PR stunt, but does it really create long-term vital systems for human flourishing? 
And, and I think what we've tried to say here is that's the kind of bless the city that we want to be about. Well, what's going to have long-term human flourishing impact on these people around us? Yeah, I said I was so blessed yesterday to go out to Grove Park, people engaging with an after-school program that's committed to tutoring children, that's committing to, to trying to take children that have very limited access to a decent education because of some situations they have at home and come alongside them and help them along, all under the banner of the gospel, all under the light of the gospel. I was so blessed by people like Alan Moak in our church, who's just engaged with helping disciple people into the job force, to try to help people that, that don't have a job, that feel underemployed, to try to, under the banner of the gospel, to lead them to more life-giving employment. It's a human flourishing system. I'm so encouraged by so many of the things that we're doing, from the literacy program to helping uh, refugee families settle you know, some of the work that some of you are doing to help these refugee families, you're literally taking the runway of what it would take for some of these families to come to a new country and get engaged in the flourishing system of the country that would take them two, three, four years, and you're shortening that to two, three, four weeks. It's incredible. Is that the kind of way that we are giving ourselves away? Are we committed to systems of human flourishing under the banner of the gospel? Another thing we see in Nehemiah is, that I believe is so powerful is he was so generous. He lived a generous life. I mean, Nehemiah is an amazing example here. Rather than take the position of authority that he worked really hard to get, that he worked really hard in, that he certainly gave himself fully for, rather than to leverage that for his own comfort and his own security, he didn't even take what he could have taken. Not, not only is he not exploiting people, he's giving away what was, you could say, rightfully his. And he's going beyond that and feeding people, leveraging the benefits that he have for the sake of others. My point in this is to say this. Listen, there's a way to live your life. And every time the Lord gives you an opportunity in your career, every time the Lord blesses you financially, every time the Lord kind of takes you to the next level, there is a way to live your life where you take all of that and say, aha, more security, more comfort, more fun for me. And if you live that way, you'll never be satisfied. You'll never have security. You'll never have enough comfort. You'll never have enough fun. But there's another way to live, to say, you know what, everything that I have, these, this new opportunity I got, this little raise I got, this is from the Lord and it's for the Lord. And I'm just a steward. God has given me this to steward. And again, it's not I'm saying it's wrong to, you know, in, enjoy some of that a little bit, uh, but, but to say, you know what, I'm going to steward this not just for myself. I'm not going to take everything that I have and just use it for myself. And I would just ask, are you living that way? And if you do, there's so much satisfaction in that. There will be a new energy that you will have toward work and wealth if you actually believe that you're stewarding it for God's kingdom and for other people, and not just for yourself. How are you doing? Are you, are you living generously? And then the final thing that we see in him is this desire that you see in him, this ability to bear the burdens of the others. And of course, we see this all over Scripture. There's a part of the text that I, I didn't get to earlier. I intentionally left it out. It's verse 
kind of 12 and 13. Let me read it again. This is after he's called the assembly, after he's basically said, hey, look, we're going to do something about this. You need to correct this. You need to give back the money. You need to give back the lands. And he says in verse 12, I called the priests and made them swear to do it, to swear to do what they had promised. And I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. Now, you may have read this and be like, what is going on here? The shaking out of the garment. <laughs> what is Nehemiah doing here? Now, you and I, we live in a culture where if you make an agreement, if you promise to do something, you sign a contract, right? Uh, you know, Paige and I, we've been having these people work on our house. What do you do? You got a contractor, you make an agreement with him. You basically say, I'll pay you all this money, but you got to do all this stuff to my house. And if you don't do it, what? There's a consequence. There's a, I can come after you. I can, you know, I can get this for you. I don't have to, uh, there's a consequence to do this. We're a contractual kind of culture. This was not a contractual culture with attorneys and contracts. It was, it was more of a, I would like to say this way, they, there was little dramas that signified these contracts or these covenants. We actually see this all through the Old Testament. In fact, when God makes this covenant with Abraham, what happens? There's animals that are cut in two. It's to say, look, if you don't fulfill your end of this covenant, may this happen to you. May this happen to you. It's a sign of what would happen to you if you didn't fulfill the covenant. So what's Nehemiah doing here? He's, he's got this fold in his garment. And he shakes it out. He says, look, just, just as that fold has disappeared, just as that fold has been shaken out, so may this happen to us if we continue on living in sin. May this, may this happen to us if we continue on living in sin. Now, the amazing thing that Nehemiah does is he is guiltless. <laughs> he hasn't been doing this. He, he hasn't been extracting interest from people. He's been giving away. He's been living incredibly generous. Yet he still takes his own garment and so identifies with his people in the state of their own sin that he's willing to say, may this happen to us. And of course, this points us to the greater Nehemiah, the Nehemiah that leads us, the Nehemiah that, that you and I can know, Jesus the Lord, who came to bring about redemption for a new kind of people of God, that God would use to make himself known and glorified through. And even though there was no fault that he had, even though there was, <laughs> there was no injustice that, that, that could be named of him, he was willing to be shaken out. He was willing to be so, he was willing to so identify with the unjust, the unjust, the exploiters, the ones who've taken advantage of other people, the ones who've taken advantage of God himself. He was willing to identify with us and to be shaken out on our behalf, to be put under the wrath of God on our behalf, to be crushed on our behalf to bear the weight of our sin on our behalf. And if you've been able to look to the cross of Jesus and see this and know this, Jesus did this for me, for our sake, for my sake. 
He who knew no sin became sin, endured the wrath of God. He who knew no sin became sin so that I might be the righteousness of God, so that God's kingdom may be manifest through me. If you know this, if you've experienced this, it'll totally change you. You won't live for yourself anymore. You won't, you won't exploit others. No, you'll see yourself as a steward as things, of things that God has given you. You'll be able to serve the marginalized. You'll be able to give your life away. You'll be able to actually display the glory of the kingdom of God. Do you know this? You know, some of you may be sitting here today and saying, look, I don't live like this. I don't give, my, everything I do, I do for myself. Everything I do, I do to try to make myself happy. What about me? I haven't, I haven't lived to please God. I've certainly not been like Nehemiah. The, the good news for you today is the simple offer of the gospel. You know, the, off, the, the gospel is so full and rich, and it leads us to know God forever and forever. But the simple invitation of the gospel is this. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Turn from your sin and look to Christ, who for our sake, for your sake, he who knew no sin became sin so that you might be righteousness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we can know you, <laughs> that we can know the true form, that our lives can be shaped by what is true and good and beautiful and right. And I, and I thank you that we don't have to count on our own righteousness to enter in to know you. We, we don't have to count on our own ability to follow your law because we can't. Father, I thank you that in Christ we have an advocate. In Christ we have a savior. In Christ we have a priest who is willing to identify with us in every way. To take on our burden, our burden of death, our burden of sin. And to lead us into kingdom life. Father, I pray that as we know this deeply, as we come to know this more fully, that, that we would be agents of justice in an unjust world. I pray, Father, that as we know this more fully and as we see this more fully, we would be the ones willing to bear the burdens of others. We would live generous lives. We would have the courage to point out injustice where we see it, to bring sin into the light. Lord, do this work in our hearts as we know Jesus. It only happens as we know Jesus. Without Jesus, we'll just become more self-centered and self-righteousness. We'll just become, in our minds, more justified. But in Jesus, Lord, we can actually be good and right and whole because we know you. So Lord, lead us to this faith. Increase this faith in our hearts, in our minds, our whole lives. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.